0: All right. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with the opportunity to spend time together and to study your word and reflect on your grace, which saves us from all of our sins. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who rescues us and brings us to live with you. In his holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So the first question is, do you have a book? Do you have a book? Everybody have a book? Okay. The, the books cost us about 10 bucks a piece, but, so you know how this goes. If you have, if you have 10 bucks, then what's that? It's available for free online. That's right. You can get, you can get Mere Christianity for free online if you, if you like. Let's see. I might not have made enough copies. This is a large crowd. I'm so glad you all are here. Okay. We'll see what happens here. Five more copies, but ten more copies of the whole thing. Ten more copies of the whole thing. Thank you. All right, I need to keep on handing these out. All right. Somebody have a handout. Did you get enough over in this corner? Okay. You didn't get any.
1: You're right in front. There. Okay. Were there extra copies over
0: in this corner? No. Okay. Mary went up. Okay. Good. Well, put while Mary's making extra copies, um, we'll just talk a little bit about why we're doing this and what's in store for us. So, uh, I, think that this, I think that this book has been a sub, the subject of women's Bible study before, um, but not, not since Pastor Nelson and I are teaching, have been teaching it, so... Um, Okay. Well, okay. Decades. 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 All right. Decades. So this will be this will be uh, a, maybe a review, but also a new sort of a new take on things. The reason that what prompts this is, um, of course, you remember from last the last half of the year, um, Jennifer Fulweiler had all of these books that she read, which were formative for her, and one of the books was *Mere Christianity*. And so it's a good opportunity for us to take a look at it and to to see what it has to offer. Now. Um, it's, this is a very a very famous book. I don't know if you know much about the history of it. It comes from C.S. Lewis's radio broadcasts during World War II. Um, he he gave three three radio lectures over the course of three over the course of three years or so, um, in which he set out to describe uh, what he calls mere Christianity. So um, he's very explicit, very clear about what he's trying to do. Um, in the in if you read the introduction, he he lays it all out. Um, He is not trying to set up an entire system of doctrine or present a whole theology. Instead, basically what he's trying to do is answer objections that people raise to the Christian faith. Um, At a time when, uh, when sort of Great Britain was losing its mooring... Um, in the Christian faith. So he was trying to answer some of the basic objections which arise in the 20th century especially, um, some of the objections of, of modernism. Um, and so he, he engages that and um, he sets out to do that in this book. Um, he, one, one, of the, one of the important uh, disclaimers he makes comes at the end of the introduction. This is on page Roman numeral 16. Um, and I think this will be very important for us as we read it. He has... Um, so a couple things to note. C.S. Lewis is a very compelling writer. Um, he's very, very, uh, he's very talented, known for his analogies um, and his clarity. Um, he's a very compelling writer. Um, and so the challenge for us will always be to take what he says and um, make sure we understand it in light of what we confess, uh, you know, what we confess to be uh, the true faith that we that we discern from Scripture. But he, he encourages this. So note, note what he says here at the end of, uh, page Roman numeral 16, he says, um, above all, so he describes, he describes the Christianity as this hallway in which there are these series of doors. Um, he, his goal is to bring you into the hallway, but then the, what remains is for you to, enter, to choose a door, basically, right? So in plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me toward this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? When you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more, and if they are your enemies, then you are under orders to... Can you hear? There we go. Okay. So does that make sense? You see what what Lewis is trying to do. Um, And he starts right off the bat in the first... The first section, when, when you get the handouts, if you, if you don't have the handout, well, most of you have it in front of you. Um, you can see how what he's beginning to do. Um, he starts with the, his first book. The first section of the book is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. So just as, as a broad outline of what he's trying to do in this section is show that it's reasonable to believe that God exists... Because everybody agrees that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Okay. Now, um, so we'll go we'll go through the go through his argument. You haven't had a chance to read this, so we'll go through the argument. I want to wait till we get more handouts to be, to go in more detail. But his 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 premise is that if everybody agrees there's right and wrong, which isn't something that's necessarily self-evident, he has to prove it. Um, if everybody agrees there's right and wrong, then that Right and wrong have to come from somewhere, right They can't just exist on their own. It's not just make believe so it's out there somewhere and, and But note what the limitation of this argument is from the beginning. Um, he's not taking us to God yet. even more, he's not taking us to jesus right and one one other thing to note about um about about this kind of argumentation is that it's simply that argumentation right. What we know about, about how the Holy Spirit works is that he uses, he uses things like argumentation, but ultimately what the Holy Spirit does to, to our hearts is convicts us of our need for God, our sinfulness, and gives us uh, comfort in the, in, the, in the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Copies. There's, there's more handouts to come, so hold tight. Anybody else need one? Mary. Okay. All right. So let's take a look at the, the the top of the outline here. The first question for you to engage, and I want you to think about this, and we'll talk about it a bit here. How do you know? How do you know whether something is right or wrong? How do you decide that? Or so you can think about it from your own experience, but also you just think about the ways in which people make that decision. What are the different ways that's, that people decide that? It has to be judged against something. OK. That's good. Now, um, I mean, just like,
1: OK, if, uh, if you're building something or making something, mm-hmm. and let's see, you cut it out. Mm-hmm.
0: you cut it out wrong right yeah so now so now of course the interesting so the interesting question so there's two there's two ways you can approach this you can either say there's no such thing as right and wrong so no matter how you cut it out it's good or you can say there is such a thing as right and wrong and in your case you're saying that it has it has to fit in order for it to be right holly what what's your I suggestion to say
1: based on how you feel about it
0: how you feel mm-hmm. yeah feelings um and and that can take that can be that can take a variety of, of forms. Um, sort of your instincts about something, whether it feels good, whether it makes you feel, um, whether whether you can justify it in your mind. Um, so, the, it, and and where where ultimately does that look? Um, where ultimately is the standard? So, in Carol's analogy, there is a box that you're trying to fit it in, but what is the box? It's outside of you. Well, in the, in this case, if it's your feelings, it's inside of you, right? Okay. Nancy.
1: I mean, ultimately, morally, most of us come from families where, as children, if you have siblings, you're like, you should share. I right. Mean, we do get a lot of that from our family. Sure. And, of course, you can drive that back, but where do they get it from? And,
0: you know. Right. There's a, very interest, uh, there's a lot of mm-hmm. sociologists um, and anthropologists love this, these kind of questions about where does morality come from, and there's... Um, I heard an interview. An interviewer went into a preschool classroom and asked some interesting questions so it's hard to interview preschoolers to begin with but you keep the question simple right so what are the rules in this classroom right so rules are no hitting um, and and basically whatever the teacher says goes right so now the next question that they ask the preschooler is can the teacher change the rules and they say well yes the teachers the teacher now the next question is, uh, and this this is challenging for for little kids. Would it be wrong for you to hit so and so, even if the teacher didn't say it was wrong, and the kids still acknowledge that it's wrong, even though the teacher wouldn't say it's wrong, and the and when when asked to justify it, the kids don't say, "Well, my folks taught me this," but they say, "Because it would hurt that person, right?" So now, um, so there, so. Already we see we, have, we kind of have, sort of anthropologically, there are two strands. On the one hand, we have social conventions, which say, for instance, when you're in a classroom, you'll, you do what the teacher says. Um, on the other hand, there, there does seem to be something um, that, that sort of underlies all of that, that sort of comes before that. For instance, that it's wrong to hurt somebody. Marilyn, did you, you were going to raise well, your hand? No,
1: I was thinking back to, you know, as a teacher, at first, you, when I first taught until my age... Really, you could use your Christian values, but later on, that wasn't okay. But there were certain things, just Mm -hmm. like you just really brought it out. You couldn't steal, hit, be mean,
0: bully. Right, right, right. Yeah. So now, um, C.S. Lewis engages the question of... um, There's an objection that comes up later about, about conventions. So he says... Well, he says, what if we all just learn morality from our parents? Doesn't that ex- sort of explain away the, the, the question? Um, he answers that more specifically later, so we'll deal with that a little bit. Um, let's dive into his argumentation a little bit here. He begins by um, simply stating outright, we all appeal to some objective external moral standard. And we have to kind of parse this out a little bit on two fronts. First of all, we all appeal to this um, even though we maybe don't all acknowledge that we do. Okay. Let me start by let me the next thing we're going to do here to illustrate this is Calvin and Hobbes. Maybe uh, so if, if for anything philosophical s- start with Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are already you guys already have it here. You're, you're cheating. That's cuz
1: the, the
0: artist's father was a treater. Yeah, that's, I, I think so. I think so. And of course, you know the you know the names Calvin and Hobbes are come from John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. So he's he's doing a lot of things deliberately here that are that are very helpful for us. Okay, so take a look at what we have here. So Calvin says to Hobbes, "I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means." Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to and let others argue about whether it's right or not. So he's a moral relativist. He says there's no such thing as right or wrong. Hobbes shoves him and into the mud, and Calvin says, Why'd you do that? You were my way. Now you're not. The ends justify the means. I didn't mean for everyone, you dolt. Just me. So... Now, what, but this, this, is, this is very insightful, not just because, not just because it, it's a good argument against moral relativism. Moral relativism is the idea that you decide, basically. You decide what's right and wrong. Morals are subjective. Um, it's a good argument against that because it's not sustainable. But it does also reveal something about how we generally think about morality, and that is we often, we often are moral relativists. You hear this all the time. People are... Most uncomfortable about saying whether something is right or wrong, right? That that is something that is that's always unpopular, because if you say that something is wrong, you are judging. First, first of all, you're judging some you're judging somebody, um, and you are saying that you know, you know better than somebody else, right? And both of those things are very are wildly unpopular. Not because people necessarily. Not uh, b- because they don't necessarily think they know, but just because it's uh, they're they're disinterested in in having that kind of scrutiny given to them, right? So, so this this shows that you know although um, moral relativism isn't sustainable, it's not it's not a, it's not a viable worldview to say that anything that I decide what's right and wrong, um, we all in in some way or another end up being moral relativists. Does that make sense? So um, it, for and this is this is sort of the uh, as Christians, it be, hopefully, the goal is, of course, that we conform ourselves more and more to God's will, or that Jesus conforms us to God's will. Um, but we find that we find ourselves doing this all the time, um, especially in the ways that we that we sort of justify sinful behavior, right? Um, or we say we say things like that um, this is between me and God, right? That's that's a that's a refrain that is. Um, that's a, a sure sign of, of moral relativism um, if it's between you and God then, it's up, then Then, basically you're saying that it's not external to you it's, it's, um, it's something that's internal right? yes? there's a, a shallow
1: uh, aspect of voicing your opinion of whether something's right or wrong and that would be being included or excluded from the
0: group right, right so, just like, just like just, it's a great, a great observation. As with, um, as with anything, um, especially in the church, um, right and wrong can, can be a tool of destruction as well, right? So, um, and this is why, this is why uh, we always have to, have to think carefully and deliberately about how we say things. So, I can say to somebody the most, the, the sweetest gospel message, Jesus died for your sins. But I can say it in a way that shames them horribly, right? Like, don't you know that Jesus died for your sins, right? Um, and, that's, and, and that's why um, nuance is, is very, very important and why, we, why right and wrong as, as um, group dividers or inclusion and exclusion, that's not the point, right? Especially as Christians, when, when it comes down to asking the question about right and wrong, basically what we're getting at is not, is not proving that God exists, when we ask questions about what's right and wrong, we're asking, how do I stand before God? How, what, is my, what, is, what is my relationship to God? Am I good? Is God Does God love me, right? And the reason why we ask questions about right and wrong is because we as Christians always are going to acknowledge I'm not good, right? I'm not in. I'm out. I'm a sinner. I deserve condemnation. I deserve hell, right? And that's, and, and that's why... Um, it's so important for us to understand right and wrong so that we understand ourselves and just how much we need Jesus. Jan.
1: I was in a situation at one point when I was working, and the other gal and I that were in the office were Christians, et cetera. We were in a mail order business, and obviously at that point, you only collected sales tax for Illinois. Sure. And the business was run by three brothers, and the three brothers didn't want to pay the sales tax to the state of Illinois. And the two of us sat there and said, when the internal revenue from Illinois comes here, we will tell them that we have the money, that you wouldn't put it, you know, you wouldn't pay it. And so we, like, literally bullied them (laughs) to let us file the forms that had to be filed. I mean... You know, it wasn't ever probably over $100 a quarter, but it was just like we're Christians and we're going to not under, you know, we're not going to say there was no tax because we know there was and we put it in the bank and we created the bills. And sometimes you can literally bully someone (laughs) into doing the right
0: thing. This is is another important facet of, of the discussion of right and wrong, and it has to do with with law, right? So, so the fact is, we all we all are on some level moral relativists, or we don't we decide that for us right is something other than what's right, and uh, and this is in spite of the fact that we have written on our hearts a really strong sense. I mean, it's 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 depraved because we're sinful, but it's a, nonetheless a strong sense of what's right and wrong, um, which is why we need, for instance, civil laws, right? So, if there weren't laws to punish people who who don't uh, pay the sales tax? Um, it, it wouldn't happen, right? Because uh, it's it's easy to it's easy to sort of justify it in your mind to make to you know say, well, this is no, this is okay, right? Um, so a, a, again, it's it's more evidence of the fact that there is there is this underlying law, but there's this disparity because we don't follow it. People don't follow it, um, and that's one of the one of the. Um, that's one of the striking things about the way the world sort of understands itself. So often, the prevailing, um, the prevailing notion that the world has of itself is that people are generally pretty good, right? As a matter of fact, people are often very altruistic, they're very uh, you know, philanthropic, they help, they help other people, um, they give of themselves, they're charitable, right? Um, and all of those things are set up as an example of how people are generally good, um, We'll talk about this a little bit more later. What we what what that doesn't reckon with is the fact that within every person is this this battle, right? Where you have to decide. You're not you don't just sort of by instincts do the right thing. You have to decide whether you're going to do the right thing or not. Um, and often and often people decide not to do the right thing. Let's uh, let's keep going with C.S. Lewis here. Um, he uh, so we all appeal to some objective external moral standard, and I wanted to just parse this out a little bit. By objective, by objective, it, it means it's it's fixed. It doesn't it doesn't vary, right? It's it's um, it's uh, you you can identify it, at, you, it. It may not it may not be clear, but it exists as a thing. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And external means it's not inside one, one or the other of us, but it is its own thing, right? Right and wrong exist as, its own, as their own thing. Um, so so this, this exists, and he, he says, well, just look across all the cultures of the world, and you'll note, while not every culture has the same sort of conventions um, about what's right and wrong, so, for instance, one culture, you can marry your first cousin. In other cu- cultures, you can't, right? But nonetheless, in no culture... Is it okay for you to be selfish? In no culture is, is selfishness admired. In no culture is deceit an honorable practice, right? Or betraying trust. Those things are, are universal. And, and, I mean, very simply, at the very least, because cultures can't, cultures can't exist where, where deceit is the, is the prevailing um, moral value, right? Trust and honesty have to be valued. Now, again, people don't do it. But nobody would say, I admire a liar, right? Nobody would say that. Um, okay. Uh, and then again, we, we, see, we saw from Calvin and Hobbes that moral relativism doesn't work. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it, it can't, it's not possible. Um, and what this demonstrates, we see this all the time. Remember we talked about this last, uh, last time around, we talked about self-justification. I told you that story about the fellow who um, he had to let his dog out and his wife told him you should have have done this, and immediately he justified himself. He said, no, the dog was barking and the baby was crying, and he came up with these justifications before he even had time to think about what she was accusing him of. That fact, that fact that um, our instinct is to justify ourselves, to say whether or not we are right or wrong, and to to, to demonstrate that we are right, that's, again, proof that, that we believe, finally, there is such a thing as right and wrong. If, if there was no such thing as right and wrong, we would never try to say, well, it was okay for me to do this because, right? We would never say that. Is all this making sense so far? Barb. I'm,
1: I'm just thinking, you know, when you talk about the different cultures share those things, but, you know, with terrorism and things like that, now you've got uh, like a subculture who believes amongst themselves not to do that, but it's a good thing if you... Right. If you lie to this other country, it's a good thing if you kill all these other people. That's okay. Right. Like this is really getting
0: complicated. You're you're right, and 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 that's it's good to think about that. So how does that work? What um, how does how does for instance, um, think about somebody some something really atrocious? Think for instance about Hitler, right? So what, what does Hitler think about right and wrong? Does, no, first of all, does he believe that there is a right and wrong?
1: He was right everybody else. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mary.
1: There's also, you could draw a comparison to Henry VIII. Henry VIII, when he got sick of his wife, sure. Neverian, he divorced her, and the Pope said no, and he just went. <laughs> yep. And it's like the ends justify the means, and. One of the things my oldest daughter and I have had many
0: talks with: if it's wrong, it's wrong. Right. And no matter a little white line is still a line. Mm-hmm. One of the I heard an interesting story lately about um, about okay, so the, so um, there I don't remember who the who the Nazi leader was it, that was on trial at the beginning of the 20th century, um, but his his defense was always simply. I was following orders, right? Um, and one of the one of the sort of propaganda tactics that the that the that the leaders would use when the sold when they were instructing soldiers to carry out atrocities is they say they would say, "We know you don't want to do this. We know this doesn't seem like the right thing to do." That because everybody has that impulse, right? This is clearly clearly this feels like the wrong thing to do, but there is a higher a higher good that we're pursuing, right? And, and, in, and in the case of, for instance, you know, uh, in, the, in the case of, of Hitler, the higher good is national socialism. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's the German nation, right? Um, in, in the case of terrorists, it's Islam, right? Uh, because, because uh, that is because, for instance, they would they would contend that society which exists apart from Islam is is not good. In fact, it's it's evil, and um, and and you can justi- they can justify that by simply pointing to a lot of the things which are evil in in Western society, right? So it's not it's not as though it's it's not as though they have some they have moral standards which are 180 degrees opposite, um, but you sort of they sort of pick and choose, right? You see, and and if you do that, you can in a sense justify anything, right? So I could say I love my kids, and I love them so much that I'm going to I'm going to and we're hungry, and I'm going to kill my neighbor to, and take his food, right? So I would never say, I, I would never say oh, of course, it's, it's wrong to kill my... Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's okay to kill your neighbor whenever you want, but I'm saying I can justify it because my kids are, are so important, right? Um, that, and that's kind of, that's kind of what, what happens in the, in, in the, the process of justification. Yeah. Nancy? Yeah, um, and that's kind of interesting because
1: at this time of Hitler, a lot of the American universities even had these departments of eugenics. Like,
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: One of these things, you know, that, oh, this is supposed to improve the human race because we're going to not allow certain people to reproduce, Yeah. And Hitler kind of used that, oh, the Jews are subhuman. Right. But, you know, I just happened to be going through some old bulletins um, from church, and there was one really good, um, one of those um, quotes, and I can't remember who it was from, but about how attractive some really, um deceitful and evil ideas can mm-hmm. be because eugenics it sounded, oh, this is going to make everybody's life better. You know, and, but it really was kind of a devil under disguise.
0: Right. Right. And, and that's exactly right. That's what happens is, you know, every, so every, every falsehood is successful because it's, because it's partly or even mostly true, right? So, for instance, the, the, the agenda of eugenics is people are going to suffer if they have to go hungry right people if we if we have overpopulation people are going to suffer because there are too many too many people and we need to do something about that right so that's it's true people suffering is bad right so there's that there's that truth we're going to cling to that and then and then it's, the the next step is is relatively easy to make okay all of this to say of course what what cs lewis makes this this quotation here at the end of the first chapter this is this is the summary that he that, that he pulls it all together First, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. Okay? So we can talk night and day about what that way is and whether it's right or wrong, but you can't disagree that people believe that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, they do not, in fact, behave in the way they believe they ought to. They know the law of nature, and they break it. So those two facts are... are are what he's what he's trying to assert. Does that make sense? Everybody on board here. Okay. All right. Any questions? Sounds like St. Paul. He does. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So of course, the <laughs> modern modern uh, sociologists are always very very insightful when they say the things that St. Paul says. But he's been saying it for a long time. So it's it's <laughs> you're right. Okay. Good. Let's move on to the ne- to the next chapter here. Um, he, he, he offers some objections that people might raise. And, these, and you'll, you'll find just how compelling C.S. Lewis is because maybe you didn't think of these objections, but once he raises them, then you're like, oh, that's a really good objection. I wish I had thought of that. So he says, what about, what about instincts or sort of like herd instincts that result, uh, the result of evolution? So what, what if we just say moral morality is evolution working towards supporting the society as a whole? And he says, this is his answer to the question. He says, well... Feeling a desire to help, so having an instinct to do something good, is quite different from feeling that you ought to help, whether you want to or not. So, so let's think of a let's think. Oh, there's this great story I heard. Um, there's a, there's a, a foundation, a subset of the Carnegie Foundation, um, and they 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 offer this award, a hero award, every year, um, and it's a it's a, a recognition and then a monetary prize, and the criteria are. Really specific. So somebody has to, it's like, selflessly endanger themselves, risk their own life to save the life of another person. And they get, all, they get tons of applications every year. But I heard a few of the stories, and it's very interesting because, for instance, one of the stories was a woman was driving down the road, and she, she looked over into the field, and um, there's an electric fence between her and a bull who is who's goring um, a woman on the ground and she and and she the woman driving the car gets up and without without thinking and she she reflects on this later she says i didn't i wasn't i didn't plan to do this i just did it right she goes without regard for the electric fence just goes in and um, a neighbor happens to be coming by hands her a, a pipe and she starts beating the bull and saves the woman's life right they they leave, they leave the fence and they leave the field what's what's so the story is kind of Grotesque, I realize. Sorry, I um, but 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 the point is, she didn't she didn't act reflectively; she just did it. She had this instinct that she uh, was going to save this woman, that it would that it was good to save this woman. That's one thing. Um, what's another thing is to reflect on what's good and do what's good, even when you don't want to, or when your instincts are otherwise. Right. So C.S. Lewis says, sure, if all of the good that we ever did was simply instinctual, or all we ever did was um, just what came to us naturally and it was all good, then of course we, we'd, have to, we'd have to answer this objection. But he says, but no, we, we also have this experience of having an instinct to do something wrong, and we reflect on it and say, no, that's wrong. I ought to do something different even though I don't want to. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> And, and and now, what you begin to see is this picture of human nature. Again, we talked about this before about the the, the sort of the competition between your intellect and your your passions, your will and your and your and your your reason. Um, that, that's kind of at play here too, right? So you have you have all kinds of instincts. All you have all kinds of moral intuitions about things. So if I so take for instance again the situation where my kids are starving and the neighbor next door's got some food, right? So I have this instinct to, to protect my children. I also have an instinct not to kill my neighbor, right? But my instinct to protect my children it happens to be stronger, and so that's what I'm going to do. Now, I, as a as a human being endowed with God's law, with an understanding of God's law, though, am, have also this reflection about it. So I can say, well, I have this instinct and I have this instinct, but which one is right? Which one is good? Okay? And so C.S. Lewis says, you could talk about instincts day and night, but the fact that we reflect on it or can reflect on it or should reflect on it and, ought, and can say, I ought to do this even though I don't want to, that is, that is a sign that there is a moral absolute that we, that we appeal to. Okay? So he answers that objection there. Um, here, he, here he sums it up better than I just did. So he says, Now this thing that judges between two instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them, you might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you at the given moment to play one note on the piano and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. So the moral law tells us which one of our instincts is right at any given time. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, he, now the next objection, he says, well, what if, what if all of our morality is something that we just simply learn from our parents? And he answers the objection here: the the people who say that questions, people who ask that question, are usually taking it for granted that if we have learned a thing from parents and teachers, then that thing must be merely a human invention. So if your parents teach you um, that it's wrong to hit your sister, then that must be something that they invented. Well, no, your parents who also teach you that one plus one is two didn't invent that, right? That's that's something objective that they are, that you wouldn't necessarily be, figure out on your own that they're teaching you, right? The same, so, so then he says, well, moral law, natural law, fits into the same category as mathematics, right? It's not something, you, your parents do in fact teach you what's right and wrong. They do teach you that you gotta share when you go to school, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they made that up. Um, it means that, that they're appealing to something more basic, something, something more fundamental, okay? You with you with, with us so far. This is so this is all CS Lewis's argumentation. I wanted to, I wanted to make sure we went through it carefully because I, I know that you didn't have a chance to read it. Next time we'll um, maybe we'll we'll spend less time on the on the argument. Although it's very, I think it's helpful to sort of really reflect on what he's doing because sometimes his arguments are sophisticated and um, take take a couple of times through uh, to, to grasp. Okay, so the third chapter here is. Um, the reality of the law. And he doesn't say, he doesn't say too much more here. This last, the third chapter is just a couple of pages. But here he, he uh, reiterates, and, and I want you to pay attention to one of the things that he describes here because we have something to talk about in the Bible um, that pertains to what he describes here. This paragraph on page 16. I now go back to what I said at the end of the first chapter, that there were two odd things about the human race. First, that they were haunted by the idea. And that word haunted is an important word. Hang on to that. Haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice, what you might call fair play or decency or morality or the law of nature. Second, that they did not, in fact, do so. Now, he concludes the chapter with this paragraph that goes on, the, on to the next page. Let me just read this to you. Some people say that though decent conduct does not mean what pays each particular person at a particular moment, still it means what pays the whole human race as a whole. So it's another objection. What if, what if morality is just what benefits societies benefits the whole the whole people altogether. then consequently there's no mystery about it of course you do what benefits society but Lewis argues as an explanation of why we feel as we do about right and wrong it just misses the point if we ask why ought I to be unselfish and you reply because it's good for society we may then ask why should I care about society right? why should I care what's good for society except when it happens to pay me personally and then you will have to say because you ought to be unselfish, which is you know takes you back to the beginning again, right? So, um, so yes, it, we 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 do sort of we do sort of have this intuition again about about that what benefits society is probably good, but again, um, uh, you know that doesn't that doesn't drive us completely because there will be plenty of times when you'll say no this would be good for society but it's certainly not good for me so I'm not going to do it, right? Okay. Let's, let's uh, break away here a little bit. I want to go back to what um, Lewis said here, that word haunted. He says that his observations about moral law are that people are haunted by the idea of a sort of behavior they ought to practice. And we see this vividly depicted in, in Genesis. Let's get some Bibles out here. Who needs one? Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Okay, everybody got one open up to Genesis chapter three. This was what we read during the morning prayer this morning and it um, when you when you read it it is um, it 's a, it's a startling it 's a startling story and often one that we just sort of we sort of breeze past. but I want to take it slow here. Let me read it again Genesis chapter three and what what you should think about here is um, when Adam and Eve uh, learn what is right and wrong, and learn that they've done wrong. Um, what, how, do, how does their life change? What is different? Um, what is different in their life when that happens? Okay? Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, of course, this is this is this is true, right? So Satan is in every falsehood there is a a perhaps a majority of truth. So right, they will their eyes will be open, they will they will know good and evil, but they're but he's wrong that God is somehow jealous of of that of that power, of that discernment. That's not why God doesn't want them to touch it or to eat it. It's because God doesn't want them to die. Carol. Why would anybody want to know evil? Well, if you don't know what it is, Perhaps you're curious. I mean, I like yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think ultimately you're right that it's, it's the... It's, so there, it, now, there's so much we can talk about. This is, yeah. great, this is a great story. So it's their pride in wanting to be like God, thinking that God is somehow withholding some good from them, that the knowledge of good and evil is something that God is keeping back for himself, something that they ought to have that he's keeping back from them. That's what, that's what prompts them to, to, to believe the serpent's lie, right? Um, so it's not because they are particular... It, 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 maybe they're curious about what this good and evil business is because they only know the good, right? Um, but m- it's, it's mostly this, this pride, right? Uh, the very pride that, that Satan, Satan exhibits himself, okay? Um, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... Moral relativism right here. This happens all the time in the Bible. So people say, I see that that is good. I, and, by, and by that, they mean this is coming out from there, coming into my eyes, and inside, I'm deciding it's good, right? Uh, Samson does this with the Philistine woman that he marries. He says to his folks, nope, I see that she is good. So I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to marry her, right? Um, uh, let's see. I shouldn't do that because I'm losing my place. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... Let's think about it this way. What characterizes, uh, just really j- in general terms, this is uh, um, in, in very general terms, what characterizes Adam and Eve's life before they eat the fruit? How, how would you describe their life?
1: Perfect,
0: Perfect. Perfect. okay. Yes, so what's a time
1: frame
0: in, on that? Without- yeah. how, how do you mean time frame? Well,
1: like Jan was like, to say, we have no idea that they
0: could have been created on Monday just get, and
1: then
0: Tuesday. Right. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm hungry. <laughs> I want to know. Yeah,
1: that's
0: right. uh, uh, Carol says Carol said innocence, and that's. I mean, this is this is um, something. Uh, this is pretty uh, an important point here. Um, they they were naked, and their their exposure to God was not shameful to them, right? And 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 Luther. So I gave you a big section of Luther's Genesis commentary, and as often happens, I started highlighting things, and then I ended up highlighting most of it. So we can't. <laughs> We can't do all of that, but if you, if you, well, oh, you didn't. You guys. (laughs) I should have, I should have, see, I wanted to be, I wanted to build some suspense by not giving everybody everything at once. You got it, Vicar? I have it. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: So. Where was I? Now this is so. Um, Luther talks all about this, about how, how the how Adam and Eve's nakedness was was a, was a glory to them, was a was a, a blessing to them because they they were um, they were with God without any shame. Okay, but then um, once they realize they are naked, they are ashamed. And what do they do in response to that shame? True. They hide. That, uh, before they hide, before they hide, what do they do? So they, they they, yeah, they cover themselves. Anybody else need one? You all got it.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> so, they, so they, so they, so they, so now they have. They have this. They know right away that they are that they are um, exposed to God's wrath. Right. So that now, God, who before to them was was a loving father, who gave them only good things. Now God is suddenly to them the one who's going to punish them, right? And it's, it's so severe, this, this, this sense of wrong, right? The fact that they've done wrong and that they are now no longer uh, justified before God. They no longer stand in righteousness before God. It's so strong that they hear this sound in the garden and They go and hide. Now, this is where Luther. This is particularly why I gave you this because Luther makes an argument here, which I think is very, uh, I, it, at least it's very um, interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know about whether it, it, I don't know whether the argument holds or not. I haven't looked at the, the text very carefully. Uh, but he says that when 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 it says they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that phrase in the cool of the day has to do with like the the breezes. In the garden. The breezes, uh, the, the winds in the garden. So Luther says it wasn't actually God walking in the garden. But it was they heard the wind and they supposed it was God coming to get them. Okay? Right? So they, in, the, in the breezes, they heard God's coming to get them. Even though, even though it, wasn't, it wasn't actually God coming to get them. Right? Because they now have this, this law that they've broken. This, this sense of their wrong. Um, and for them, it is so severe that, as Luther says, this is, this is sort of the famous passage from Luther's commentary here. He says, um, Adam and Eve were terrified by the rustling of a leaf. Okay? We see it to be just so in the case of frightened human beings, Luther says. When they hear the creaking of a beam, they are afraid the entire house may collapse. When they hear a mouse, they are afraid that Satan is there and wants to kill them. By nature, we have become so thoroughly frightened that we fear even the things that are safe. Now, um, in some ways, in some ways, we're very desensitized to this um, in 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 Western culture and in America. Um, we 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 have we have sort of a, a low sense of this kind of terror, of this kind of responsibility towards God, and that's one of the challenges of of the church is to preach, is to is to to, to say how God feels about. About sin, right? That for him it is, it makes people the object of wrath. That he that he hates sin, and that um, and that it warrants punishment, um, and that we as as uh, as people who have broken his law, people who know the right and wrong and do the wrong, that we that we are in the state of fearfulness, right? Because um, what if God what if God catches us? And what does that what does it mean if God catches us in sin? So we have so. So there's a couple things going on here. One is I wanted to, I wanted to show you how this shows up in in Genesis, how it shows up that um, that there's now in humanity this this sense of right and wrong, and this fear that accompanies it. Right. This is why we why we justify ourselves because we're afraid that if we're wrong, something bad will happen. Right. Whether it's God's wrath or not is it's usually not that we're afraid of God's wrath, although although you know. That's that's ultimately what what threatens sinners, Um, but what uh, but but it shows you that this this comes from the very beginning. This comes from this this sense of right and wrong and the fear that accompanies the the need for self justification. This comes from the very beginning. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Notice also what Adam and Eve do. I mean, this is it becomes sort of comical, right? Um, He says to Adam, "Why did you hide? Who told you that you were naked? Well, did you eat the fruit?" Um, the man says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, right? So he's, he's justifying himself. He's saying, this is, how, this is how it was right for me to do it, right? He's saying, I know I'm know right and wrong, and this is why it was right. Um, the woman, again, because the serpent deceived me.
1: Or, or at least it's
0: not wrong. Right. It may not be
1: right, but it's not
0: really wrong. Or it's not my, it's not my fault. Yeah. That's a favorite excuse, right? It's not really my fault. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's something for us to. That's something really. This is hard. This is hard as Lutherans because what? Notice what we, what we. Lutherans, we hold this position, which is so, so challenging, because we say on the one hand we are sinful by nature. And and all that we do, um, is is corrupt in God's eyes apart from Jesus, right? So in Jesus, we um, we are justified. We, we do. We, we don't have to justify ourselves. Jesus justifies us. So in Jesus, we do good that pleases God. But apart from Jesus, all we do, all we do is wrong. Right. So we we, we hold that position. At the same time, we say, and, and we say you can't do anything. You can't do otherwise. Right. You can't stop it. You you're gonna sin. It's it's Paul who says, um, I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Right. Can't do anything about it. Nonetheless you 're responsible for it right that's that's i mean that is uh, that 's that's an unpopular <laughs> position to hold right to say that you can 't do anything else you can't do you can 't do otherwise um, but you but you still are nonetheless responsible for your actions um, that's that's um, that's what exactly what paul says um, and and that 's why uh, it 's because of this of this sort of completely untenable position where we have that's that's why we have no hope in ourselves right so we're responsible for things that we can't we can't change Um, that's why it has to come from outside of us that's why Jesus has to come and rescue us and why um, the great the the great risk I mean you did a bible study on idolatry right on on idols last year right so idols are, are whatever you put your trust in apart from God and this is and this is—this is the life of a Christian is rooting out idols, rooting out the things that you think are going to save you other than Jesus, right? The things that you think are going to make you a better person or things that are going to make you do good or help you do good. Rooting out those idols, um, that's the life of a Christian. Is all this making sense? Okay. Um, any questions? What we'll do going on, I gave you, uh, let's see, I think some of you have... This other article here, let me just hand it out because I think it's interesting we it's uh it's a bit of a segue um, this is this is sort of tangential um but it it's an interesting article by a, a columnist who writes for the New York Times and he writes often about about religious matters or commentary on social things um and he says. He he, there's there was a I don't know the story I don't I don't remember the story but he he's talking about this um, about a trial that took place and somebody who committed an atrocity and how people described um, this, they they, so they would say about Bobby they'd say well, I, we never we never we couldn't imagine him ever doing this um, and David Brooks the author of this article talks about how um, it shouldn't surprise us when people when people do. When people do terrible things and as a matter of fact there was a time when it wasn't surprising so on the on the second page he talks about how um, how how when when Christianity um, was you know more prevalent as a worldview and when people understood the nature of sin right how how infectious sin is and how how it corrupts us entirely when people when people understood that then they weren't surprised when people committed atrocities right they said well that makes sense because we're all sinners right um, anyway i 'll just give this to you as uh, some interesting reading. Um, well we 'll talk about it some other time. Um, the idea with uh, with c s. Lewis now is to go about twenty pages a week, and the chapters divide up pretty nicely in that in that way. so that means for next week it 's the next four chapters. nope, next three chapters to pages twenty one through forty. Does that make? I think it, I think it works out basically to the end that we can do every 20 pages, okay? Um, anything else? Any questions? Any comments? That's, you know, I, we'll, 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 we'll take care of that next time. <laughs> the, <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll do it. Okay, let's, uh, let's close with a prayer. Amen. Thank you.